Hi. Wow, I was doing very well until I saw that video, and then I completely fell apart. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to try to uh, maintain some uh, composure here. Um, boy, 10 years is a long time. Um, I remember... Um, I remember when we started our, uh, our church 10 years ago uh, in, a, in a living room that uh, there was just a few of us. And I remember that we would set the chairs out. And, and I remember when I was setting the chairs out, I'd pray over every single chair. Um, and then I remember when we moved to, uh, and I, we'd set 25 chairs up in a living room. And I thought, boy, what would happen if that many people showed up to hear me talk about God? I mean, that, what, you know, that's impossible. And um, and and they did. And then we, we moved this to to this hotel, um, which, as you saw, the maximum capacity was 25 people. But we were able to cram like 70 or 80 people uh, in there. And I remember I, I um, we set it up and I remember we set up the chairs and I pray over every single chair. And I thought, God, I wonder, could you, would you? And he did. And then we moved to this uh, this movie theater and. Um, we met in this little theater, and I remember the chairs were already set up, which was such a bonus. Um, although our foot, feet stuck to the floor because of the butter, and uh, so that was the downside. Also, um, there was a lot of roaches, but we counted those as in our attendance. Um, and, um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was just amazing. And then we moved to the big theater uh, at, at, at the movie theater, and we started doing three services in there, and then we moved to... High school, and then we met here. And um, could I, if I could just add, is there anyone uh, in this service who, who was back at the house? Have anybody uh, here that was that was back at the house? Pedro, can you would you mind standing? Uh, and we, we want to honor you this morning. Yeah. Um, we do we do a thing every year um, at church. We um, we we invite everyone who serves uh, to this big celebration to, that we, as like an appreciation dinner, and we thank them. And every year we um, we we give an award to um, we, we we call it Servant of the Year. And Pedro won Servant of the Year last year for and for all these years of, of faithful service. So um, so we honor you for serving uh, so faithfully. Is there anybody here that um, that that was here when when we met in the hotel? Uh, anybody that was that's here from the from the hotel, would you stand if you're here when you if you showed up when we were in, in the hotel? Yeah, a couple people, three, four, five, six. We honor you. We honor you this morning. Um, uh, anybody that was with us when we met in a movie theater? Anybody here? Yeah, figured a lot of us. Why don't you go ahead and stand up? We honor you this morning. Um, that all of us uh, together. Um, and uh, anybody here that started meeting when we met at Barbara Goldman High School? Anybody here? That was, that, yeah, all right. All right. That's great. Um, and, uh, and we honor you as well this morning. And then those of you that are here, that you started coming here uh, to this, uh, to Everglades, when we, uh, when we started here a few months ago, we honor you as well this morning. And um, I am absolutely overwhelmed um, at what, what God has done. I can promise you this really has so little to do with me. And many of you have been so kind. Um, uh, and, you know, the, these videos and, and all that is so kind. But here's what I know. It is it is God working through his his spirit, just looking for someone um, to to do a work in a place where maybe no one wanted to go. And uh, things were so different 10 years ago, uh, so different than they are now. 
Um, uh, you know, the number one song the week that we started our church was music, the song Music by Madonna. Uh, this is back before Madonna was, a, she was just an artist, not a religious figure. Um, and, um, you know, we were just hearing about um, this band called Coldplay. They were new. Uh, some of us were mourning the breakup of Rage Against the Machine at the time, which I was one of them. Uh, and uh, some of you are like, who's that? That sounds satanic. Just move on. Nothing to see here. Um, the top grossing movie at the time was uh, was Mission Impossible 2. Uh, and that was once again before Tom Cruise went completely insane. Um, the, the top TV show at the time was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And, um, and so if you ever see pictures from like 10 years ago and everybody's wearing like red shirt with a monochrome tie, uh, we can all thank. I don't know why all of us as a society said we should get our wardrobe tips from Regis Philman, uh, but we did for whatever reason. And um, back then, uh, if you're not aware, like iTunes didn't exist, right? There's no podcast, none of that stuff. Uh, there's no iPods. Um, and so um, we, everything that we recorded, like all the old messages that that we uh, that we recorded, those were all recorded onto cassette. And you're like, cassette, what's that? Uh, where they're like these little things that had tape inside. I mean, you'll see a picture of it at Sunday. Um, and I'm sure it's like in a museum somewhere. And um, so uh, and digital cameras had first come out. And we we had this practice and we still have this practice that whenever someone starts serving, uh, we take their picture and we attach it to a uh, the, the, the ministry questionnaire that they filled out. And um, and so but the 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 digital cameras like five or six hundred bucks when they came out. So I I went to uh, I went to Target and I bought a Polaroid camera for nineteen dollars and ninety five cents. And little did I know, like the film would cost like 80 bucks a pop. But I thought I was making a wise financial decision at the time. And uh, so we started we were taking pictures on a Polaroid camera, recording onto cassettes. I mean, I'm surprised that we didn't have like a, you know, a gerbil that was like powering the building. Um, But uh, at the time, you know, when I got it shortly after. But when we first started the church, I didn't even have a cell phone yet. And I know I was a little bit of a late bloomer. I wasn't really sure if they were going to take off or not. Uh, I didn't want to be like, oh, you had a cell phone. Would you also have a Betamax? Um, but, uh, so people are like, what's a Betamax? Anyway, look it up. Wikipedia, they'll tell you. Um, but anyway, so what happened is, is that I used to have, I had a beeper. And, um, so I had, I used to keep all these quarters in my car, you know, this little Honda. And I used to keep all these quarters in my car so that when someone would, would beep me with their number, I'd, I'd go off and I'd call them back on a payphone. Like some of you are like, when was the last time you saw a payphone? I don't know. Uh, I was in a foreign country a couple of years ago and I saw a payphone, but I think that's the only place they still have them. Um, but uh, but then people would beep you 911. Do you remember that? Like, I remember my mom one time beat me 911. And I gave up on it. Is everything okay? No, but I see you somebody holy. Okay, that's done with that. Um, so I don't know if that's a necessarily a 911 call. Um, but, you know, lots of things, lots of things have changed. But, you know, so much has stayed the same. Um, some, sometimes people attend Calvary for the first time and they're just like, wow, it's a really relaxed atmosphere. And, and the reason it's a relaxed atmosphere is because we started in a house. You can't be like really formal in somebody's living room. You know, it's like because if I came out like wearing a robe in a living room, people would be like, dude, go back into the shower and finish up. We'll wait, you know, because uh, you couldn't you can't pull that off like in a living room. And here's what we did is that we would just, um, you know, I would I would lead the worship kind of like what you saw earlier. Um, and uh, and then, you know, we'd be done. And by the way, the reason that Sometimes if you ever into a different church, like they'll have everyone say hello in the beginning and then they'll do the worship and go right into the teaching. I couldn't do that because I did the teaching and the worship. So 
um, I would uh, I had this little music stand that I used as a pulpit back then because uh, we couldn't afford a pulpit. So we had to use this like ten dollar music stand. And so I would play the songs. And then when I was done, I'd tell everybody to say hello to each other. And that way I would I would put the guitar on the stand and then I'd get behind the music stand. And I'm like, thank you for that time of worship. Now let us open God's word. And so I and it's kind of my wife said that's uh, bordering on split personality. But um Anyway, one part of me said yes, the other said no, but anyway, that's something else. Um, but uh, some of you got that joke, and others of you won't. Um, and, uh, but then, uh, but here's the thing. So this is the reason. It's like we would, uh, we would do worship, and, and, and there would be teaching. And that's basically what we've done for ten years, is focus on the worship of God and then focus on the teaching of His Word. Because that, I believe, is the best way to disciple people into mature followers of Jesus is to just see them uh, as we work through our way, uh, work our way through the word of God, work our way through books of the Bible and see what it is that God does. And um, and over the last 10 years, uh, we've taught through 25 books of the Bible. Uh, I counted that recently and I was amazed by that. And um, so this morning we start book number 26 and it's a book in the Bible that's called Judges. In Hebrew, it's called Shoftim, S-H-O-F-T-I-M. And it was written by the prophet Samuel in about uh, 1025 B.C. And when I say judges, I don't want you to think about like Judge Wapner, uh, Judge Judy. You know, I don't want you to think Judge Joe Brown. Is he even on anymore? Um, but I don't want you to think about them. I don't want you to think about robes and gavels. I want you to think of heroes because that's what they were. They were people. They were heroes that God had sent to deliver the children of Israel. Because the story of Judges is a very simple one. It's a very cyclical story. It's kind of like the same story over and over again at times. Uh, and in many ways, I kind of, it's like, kind of like Groundhog Day. It's like you're, you're like reliving the same story. And the children of Israel in many ways were. You see, Israel would serve the Lord. And then Israel would decide at some point in time to start worshiping other gods. And then they would be taken over. They would be conquered by another nation because of their idolatry. God would give them over to another country. And then when they were enslaved by that nation, God would then or they would then cry out to the Lord. And as they cried out to the Lord, God would send this judge, this hero, this deliverer. And he would defeat this group of people and he would bring them back to the place that God had promised to them. And see, the thing is that as we go through Judges and we spend the next, you know, two months or so looking in the book of Judges, here's the thing that you might say, like, how do they just, don't they just realize the cycle that's happening? But listen, before we judge them too harshly, let's remember that sometimes that's the cycle of our lives as well. That Jesus saves us and then somehow and in some way we start serving someone or something else. And the thing that God had freed us from now becomes the thing that enslaves us. And then we call out to God and in his mercy and in his grace and in his love, he rescues us. But pardon me, why does this happen to them and why does it happen to us? And here's what I want to do. And it's kind of a very odd way to start a study in in a brand new book of of the Bible. But what I've got to do is take you to the very end of Judges to explain to you what happens in the beginning of Judges. And in your notes, here's what what you have. I have the very last verse in the book of Judges. And it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what they saw fit, and it was a complete disaster. And the reason it was a complete disaster is because everyone stopped engaging in the battle. Now, please understand, if I can give you a little bit of background that leads us into the verses that we'll read this morning. The children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 
And, uh, and to give you the, the, the verbiage of the Bible, the Bible says that God delivered them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And, and God says, and I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you unto myself that you might be my own special people. According to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so God brings them 40 years in the wilderness and then Moses dies at the edge of walking into the promised land. But there's this leader that God has raised up, a man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua marches them into the land and they defeat Jericho and they defeat Ai and they defeat all of these other cities around them. And here's the thing that happens. But here the deal is, but the battle's not done yet. There are still more battles to fight. There are still more wars to wage for them to be able to take the land, take the place, take this what will be a country, what God had given to them. But see, the story of Judges happens when the people got lazy. The people got complacent. The people began to compromise. And what they did was that they gave, they started looking around at the gods that were around them in the other nations. And God gave them over to their desires until they called out for God to save them. And this becomes now the cycle of, jar, of, of judges. And listen, the same thing that happened to them is the same thing that happened to us. Jesus, if you're a Christian here, Jesus saved you. And then you know what happened is that he started making radical changes in your life as you opened yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then guess what happened? What happened was is that sometimes we get a little distracted, we get a little comfortable, and the things that God had saved us from become sometimes the very things that we long for. Not realizing that those were the things that God had freed us of, and so we begin to walk towards those things, and the things that we were once free of are the things that enslave us once again. But here's the thing, my friends, that I love about Judges, is that it's a time of heroes. It's a time when God would raise up a man or a woman and they would deliver the people and lead them to the place where God ultimately wanted them to be. Now, this isn't in your notes and you might want to jot it down somewhere, but I really believe that there's three things that God wants to do in us in this book. I believe that God will stir you up in this book. See, it will show you that God is looking for a man or a woman fully devoted to him who is willing to step out in faith. This book will stir you up. This book will build you up. Judges will show you the uh, with will fill you with faith as you see God deliver his people over and over again. And God fulfills his promise that I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. And this book will also lastly lift us up. It shows us that we don't have to be perfect to be used mightily of God. And we will see many things that these judges do that are wrong. But God shows us through this that God uses imperfect people. To do extraordinary things. One of the verses that I've lived my entire life by is the verse that I put in your notes in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth. It says, To show himself strong on behalf of who, those whose heart is loyal to him. You see, if you want to be used by God like the judges were, if you want your life to be extraordinary like the judges were, if you don't want to just live in the mediocrity that many settle for, listen, we have to do what the judges did. We have to see what it takes to be a man or a woman of God. And that's what we're going to look at in this first section of Judges, is what does it take, what does it look like to be a man or a woman of God? I believe there are four characteristics of a man or woman of God that we're going to see. So I'm going to invite you to open to Judges chapter 1 as we begin in verse 1. And here's what we read. It says, Now after the death of Joshua it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go uh, first? 
to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. And the Lord said, this is important, Judah shall go up. And indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me to my allotted territory that we might fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. And then Judah went up and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they, de- they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled and they pursued him and they caught him and they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that I want to tell you. Is that a man of God, a man of God obeys God faithfully. He obeys God faithfully. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I, I took my family to Disney a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were got back from one of the parks one day, and I had given my son a bath and put on his pajamas. And then one of the last things that we do is we brush his teeth um, because, you know, he's got six of them, and we've got to make sure those things are good. So I brushed his teeth, and he's always trying to get the toothbrush while I'm brushing his teeth. So I tell him no, but after I brush his teeth, I let him hold the toothbrush. So I, I brush his teeth, he holds the toothbrush, and then I turn to get a towel, because my hands were a little wet. So I turn to get a towel, and he takes the toothbrush and stabs me in the eye with it. And um, now, mind you, it wasn't even like with the butt end of the toothbrush, it was with the bristle end of the toothbrush that had toothpaste on it. So while I couldn't see, my eye was minty fresh. And, um, and so the thing that happens is, is that I finally go to, uh, the next day uh, in the evening, I go to the ER, but um, during that day, which, by the way, was a good decision, but I tried to go that whole day without going to the ER, which is the bad decision. And also, I, and I told my wife, because my eye was so sensitive to light, I said, can we just do something else besides go to the parks? And I said, because I don't think I can do it with how sunny it is. And she said, well, why don't we just go to the mall? Because there's a couple of things we need to pick up anyway. So I get on I-4 with one good eye to try to drive from my hotel to the mall. By the way, that's not really a good idea. I don't know if you knew that. That's not good. Because, you know, you're, if you're used to dri- driving with two eyes, then that's like what you need. But I was like this the whole time trying to drive. And um, like when you only got one eye and you're used to two, it, it like starts messing with your depth perception. And so I'm, I'm like this and I'm driving and Carrie's like, Bob, there's a car, 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 car. And uh, ex- except it wasn't quite that loud because she didn't have a microphone. And, um, and, and, so, and so I hit the brakes and I'm like, oh, that's a bit. I, She's like, didn't you see that? And I'm like, well, of course. Uh, and she's like, you didn't see that, did you? And so I, I did. She drove back home. But I will tell you this. Her prayer life went up a couple notches because of that. And uh, so you're welcome. And, uh, and, and here's the thing. But here's the thing that I learned throughout that whole experience is that sometimes our vision is not as good as we think it is. Sometimes we think we see things very, very clearly. And guess what? We don't. And this is the very thing that happens when, in the opening verses, the, the, the Israelites ask God, hey, who should go up? Who, who's going to fight against the Canaanites first? And God says, I want Judah to do it. And so here's what Judah does. They inquire of God. That's good. But then God, then they say, I want Judah to go. And what does Judah say? He turns to Simeon and he says, hey, you want to come with me? And then when it's your turn, I'll go with you. And, uh, you know, you know, it's like we can be like Mario and Luigi. And, it's, and they kind of do that, that thing. And it's like, 
What is that all about? God called you. And that's why we say that, that the, the first making of a man of God is that he obeys God faithfully. He doesn't take the words of God and say, when God speaks to him and say, well, I'm going to take it under advisement. No, when God speaks to you, the answer is, yes, Lord. Not, well, you know, we'll see how it goes. No, it's, yes, God, I hear what you're saying and I'm going to do it. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy 3, I put it in your notes. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, underlying this, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God gave them His Word, but they chose not to obey it. And you know, there was something that God wanted to show them. It's not that, if you notice, they still defeat the Canaanites, right? They say, well, what? no harm, no foul, right? No, no, no. Because it's not just that God wants His work done. God wants His work done His way. So we've got to do the work of God God's way if we want to see the the blessing that God has for us and if we want to build the character of a man of God which God desires for us. You see, what was God trying to teach Judah in this? God tells him that. He says, listen, you go up, Judah, because I've already given them into your hand. You don't need Simeon to go with you. So what is it that he's really trying to teach them? He's trying to teach them quite simply, Judah, here's the deal. I'm enough. I'm enough. You don't need something else, someone else, somewhere else to do some other thing. No, instead, he says, I'm enough. And I'm telling you guys, it's the challenge that we have as well. Listen, guys, those of you that are in sales, can I just tell you this? Those of you that are, that are working in sales, the challenge that you have is do you like overpromise on the product to make the sale, overpromise on the thing to make the sale, or... Do you work honorably knowing that it might cost you? But knowing that if you honor the Lord, the Bible says that he will lift you up in due season. And that's the challenge that we have. You see, this is the challenge that that some have with with money. Do I do it God's way and honor him with my resources or do I do it my own way? Now, let me tell you something. Over the last 10 years, money is not something that we've focused on a lot at Calvary. But let me just tell you something. And and one of the reasons is because sometimes... um, Pastors and preachers will talk about money and it will make you think that like, oh, my heaven is in foreclosure. God is broke. God is getting a loan modification. This is it's bad up there, you know, and and we think that that's really what's happening. Can I just tell you that that's not the case? The Bible says this, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's the Bible's way of saying that God is filthy rich and he doesn't need anything. We say, well, then why does God talk about giving? Why does God ask that we do give? And here's the purpose is that God asks us to give not because it's his way of raising cash. It's his way of raising his kids. In your notes in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says this. It says the purpose of tithing is to teach you to put God first in your life. It's how God makes a man of God. It's how we learn to trust him. But the point is this. The point is when God speaks to you, From his word, will you listen? When you hear it from me, from this pulpit, or from from someone else, from this pulpit, from the scriptures, are you going to obey it? Are you going to say, ah, that's pretty good, I'm going to think about that? Or will you say, no, I'm going to do it, because to hear God and not not obey it is basically some type of pseudo-spirituality without commitment. Now, on that very subject, uh, theologian uh, Eugene Peterson, he wrote these words, I found them so important that I wanted to share them with you. But here's what he said. He said, spirituality without commitment is analogous to sexuality without commitment. Quick and casual, superficial and impersonal, selfish and loveless. 
eventually a parody of its initial promise. Deprived of commitment, spirituality, no matter how wise or promising, has a short shelf life. Jesus would say it this way. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. That's the problem that Judah has. But look at what happens in verse 8 of Judges 1. It says, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterwards the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. And now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba. And they killed Sheshay and uh, Ahiman and Talmai. And yes, I practiced. Um, and from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. And then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, I will give my daughter Aksa as, his, as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And so he gave him his daughter, Aksa, as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him and asked her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb asked her, what do you wish? And so she said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. Give me also springs of water. And so then Caleb, uh, Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing that I want to share with you. And that is that a man of God rises to the challenge. He's not a wimp. He's not a wuss. He rises to the challenge given to him by God. Listen, in that culture, marriages were arranged and it was the responsibility of a father to find a godly man for her, for, for his daughter. And so, now mind you, when I first became a Christian, I was, I was single, I was 19 years old, and I remember thinking, like, come on, that's, that must have been horrible to, be, to have, like, somebody else pick your husband or wife for you. And now I'm a dad, and now I see the wisdom of God. And I say, I should be as more involved than either of my kids and who they marry. And, um, which, my daughter and I have a deal, though. Um, it, you know, she can pick whoever she wants to marry, but she's not allowed to shave her legs till she's 30. So, we, you know, that's the way we've worked it out. But here's, um, in Jesus' name. Anyway, so, but here's the thing. But here's what I love about this passage. The thing that I love about this passage is that Caleb has a daughter. And as a man of God, he wants his daughter to marry a godly man. And so he sets out this challenge. Now think about the challenge. Whoever, whatever man is man enough, godly enough, to be able to defeat that entire city... That man can have my daughter. And a man by the name of Othniel steps up and he says, I'm willing to do it. And this man takes an entire city, defeats it, and then goes back to this man, Caleb. And he says, I did it. And then Caleb, true to his promise, gives his daughter to Othniel. Dads, can I tell you, share with you something? If you have a daughter, you are the most important person in her world. And you may not realize it, she may not realize it, and mom, I'm not trying to downplay your role by one iota. But dad, the way that your daughter relates to men later on in life is because of you. The way that your daughter will relate to God is because of your relationship with her. And so the, the issue is this. Othniel rises to the challenge. She, uh, Caleb finds the godly man for his wife, and, and Caleb makes good on his promise. And then what happens is this. And you think, well, did Caleb... What happens? 
Did Caleb choose well? You bet he did. And you know, so I want you to read this with me. This is, uh, or listen to it as I read it in Judges chapter 3. When Israel falls into the cycle of sin, they start serving other gods and all this whole thing. Then they get, uh, they're, in cap- they're, they're, they're now oppressed by this other nation. Look who God calls on. It says, then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, which were false gods at the time. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, uh, king of Aram, Nahareth. Man, these could have been easier. In the hands of Joe. Anyway, that would have been easier for me. Um, to whom the Israelites were subject for 80 years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up a delivery. You may want to underline this. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he was Israel's judge and he went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rithatham, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered them. And the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. This man, Othniel, who defeated the city, became Israel's first judge, first hero, their first deliverer. And it's amazing how God prepares us and how we have to rise to the challenge because we don't know what's coming after the challenge that that God has presented to us. You see, God says to Othniel, you want to marry this woman? Great. Take that city. Well, why? That seems like an unreasonable request. Because someday you're going to have to take on an entire nation and you're going to have to get because God is going to call you to deliver these people and you're going to have to do it. And listen, later he'd be required of that. In his service of God. Men, can I just talk to you for a minute? If you want to win the heart of a woman, be worthy of her. Be the kind of man who can be a a, a hero, a champion to her. And be worthy of her. She's not looking for a guy that's really good at video games. She's not like, oh man, if I could just find somebody who could rock the, the Legend of Zelda, I'd be all set. No, she's not. She's not looking for that. She's not looking for somebody who's rocking it old school with an Atari 2600. She's not. Here's what she's looking for. She's looking for someone who is a champion, who is a hero, who will fight for her, who will win her over, and someone who is worthy of her. Girls, can I just tell you this? Do not, do not sell yourself short. You may not think you're worthy of someone who is heroic and someone who is a champion, but you have a heavenly father who believes that. Someone wants to marry you, someone wants to be with you, then here's the deal. Let him prove that he's man enough to be with you. That he's man enough to win you over. That he's man enough to win your heart. That he's man enough to be the champion and the hero that God has called him to be. Men, we can make a decision today that this is the kind of man that we want to be. The kind of man like Othniel, a man who was godly, a man who was courageous, who did not shy away from the challenges, who didn't ask his buddies to come with him when he had a challenge. Instead, when he was given the challenge by God, he manned up and did what was necessary in service of God. Ladies, that's what you're looking for. Guys, that's who we're seeking to be. But then there's more to the making of a man of God. He's a man who obeys God faithfully. He's a man who rises to the challenge. And let me give you the third one. He's a man who does not compromise his convictions. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't compromise. Let me show you what happens. In um, uh, The next few verses are Judah seeking to conquer um, the, the, the cities that they're given. But I want you to look at verse 21. It says, But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. 
So the Jebusites dwelt in, in, uh, with the children of Benjamin to this day. They couldn't do it. They couldn't drive them out. So now they're stuck living together. Look what happens in verse 29. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean uh, and its villages, or uh, Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblaim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. It goes on in verse 29. Look what it says. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Verse 30, nor did the Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or nor of Alab or of Exib or of Helba or of Aphek or Roheb. In verse 32, it says, so the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites for they were not able to drive them out. Verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Aneth. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Aneth were put under tribute. We'll come to that in a second. In verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Ejelon, in Shalabim, for yet their strength, yet when their strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they put them under tribute. See these whole series of compromises that takes place. Let me tell you kind of what, what, what happens here. Um, you have all of these people, right? You have all of them, and I want you to notice, like in Benjamin in verse 21, Manasseh in verse 27, Ephraim in verse 29, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, Joseph, none of them could drive out the inhabitants of the land. None of them. And it's like, why? So instead of fighting harder, instead of doing what God wanted them to do, they just compromised and lived with it. In Joshua's final address to the people, he says these words to them, in Joshua chapter 23, when Joshua knows that he's going to die soon, Joshua says to the people, hey, listen, I've got to tell you this. He says, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. So to this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of the nations, that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from the good land which the Lord your God is giving you. You see, Joshua's final address is this. If you don't deal with the inhabitants of the land, they will hurt you and they will destroy you. Fast forward a few hundred years, 586 B.C. The Babylonians have come in. They've destroyed the city of Jerusalem and set it on fire. And here's what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 36. It's not in your outline. Just jot it down. It says that they were carried away because of their idolatry and the worship of false gods, which the other nations around them worshipped. You see, sometimes we just, God wants to get us there and we're not sure if we actually want to go there. Uh, I, I flew to Atlanta earlier this week, and if you haven't been around here for a while, I absolutely hate flying. I believe it's unnatural. 
I believe if man was meant to fly, we would have been given wings. And so I believe we are land people. And so anyways, but either way, I have places to go. And so I had to go to Atlanta and South Carolina. So I get on a plane and I drive to the airport. I park my car, I go through security, which, as you know, is always a delight. And uh, so I walk to the terminal and there's like four uh, flights boarding through all through the same uh, at the same gate. And so I walk up and I say, hey, do you, is, I'm, at, I'm on the 140 to Atlanta. And they say, oh, well, th- they scan my ticket and then they, they rip it and they say, well, just go out through this door. So I walk out through this door, and much to my surprise, I'm outside. Not like, oh, you went down like the little like gate, the, the, the hallway. No, no, no. I was outside. Then they said, oh, make a left. I, I turn left. I'm on the tarmac. And I think, I don't think I'm in the right place. And so then the, 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 there's a guy there who works there um, for the airline, and he says, get on this bus. And I'm like, this ain't Greyhound. I'm trying to get on a plane to go to Atlanta. They said, yeah, get on this bus. So I get on this bus and I start talking to the people around me. And I'm like, do you have any idea what's going on? They're like, yeah, we've never done anything like this before. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've been going through season seven of 24. So I'm very suspicious of everyone <laughs> right now because everyone is doing something. So I'm watching very carefully. Even some of you, I'm watching very carefully. So, you know, because I'm not Jack Bauer, but I know him. So anyway, but... So the whole thing is, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little nervous, but then they're going to take us out. So the bus leaves and it's like not, it's like about 8,000 degrees on this bus. And, um, and it's, there's no seats, by the way, everybody's standing and that's, you know, just makes it even better. And then we, we go where there's a plane there and then they kind of go around the plane to like this thing that's like a plane, only smaller. And, uh, and I say, and I say to the guy and I'm like, what's that? And he says, that's your flight. That's your plane. I'm like, that ain't my plane, buddy. That might be your plane. It ain't mine. And he goes, well, do you want to get to Atlanta? And I'm like, I'm debating it. And, uh, and he says, well, you're going to need to get on that plane if you want to get to Atlanta by 3 o'clock. And I say, well, I'll let you know. So, I, so then they put up this thing. I mean, it's not even like one of those deluxe um, stair things. It's like this thing that's like a glorified ladder that they have up against the plane. And I'm just like, oh, no. It's like all my nightmares have been realized. And so I walk up to the top and I get in. And that's when I saw it. And I said to myself, I said, this is how it's going to end. This is how they will say, and that's how Bob died. I'm telling you, because this thing was horrible. And, um, and you know, I had spoken to both my parents and my wife before I got on the plane. And I'm like, God has worked it out this way. I've spoken to the people I love. It's over for me. And then, and, and so, but I get on the plane. And you know how, like, if you're on a, uh, like a 757, It's three seats, five seats in the middle, and then three seats on the side, and there's two aisles. If you're on, like, let's say a triple seven, why I even know these things is beyond me, but if you're on, like, a triple seven, let's say it's three seats on each side and then the the aisles in the middle, right? You kind of, everybody, we've probably all been on a flight like that. Well, imagine a plane that on one side is two seats and on the other side is one. So then I sit down in my chair, um, I I, I sit down, and I just say, this is not going to end well. So I call my wife because that's what people do before they die. And I say to her, and, and I'm like, uh, I'm on the plane. And she's like, oh, how is it? I'm like, well, it's like a plane, only smaller. And so she says, well, what do you mean? And she says, oh, I know you wanted to change your seat. Did you get the window or aisle? And I said, well, technically, I have both. <laughs> and, uh, and she says, well, what do you mean? Well, I explained the flight. And she says, well, how do you feel? I said, I think I have about a 65% survival rate. <laughs> and, um, and she says, well, 
what are you going are you going to get on the plane and i said well i have to and she says why i said because if i don't take the fl- flight my friends will make fun of me and she says so are you serious and i'm like carrie i'm a man i have no choice i have to get on the flight if i tell them that i wimped out what will i say just tell them you didn't like the plane well i i, I can't say that and she's like well you should get on the plane and i'm like why are you encouraging me to get on the plane are you like you know are you like thinking of making a change you know we've been married we've been married it's gonna be 14 years Carrie. i can't even believe you're talking like this and she's like well i just want you to know we ruled out divorce but murder still on the table and i'm like i can't even believe this and i say you know what i'm gonna survive just to stick it to you and my friends quote unquote sure enough i land and uh, I get off the plane, and I'm telling you, and you know how usually something's get up on the go, that was nothing. Let me tell you something. Never again. Next time I will take the humiliation. Um, because I want to get from here to there, but man, sometimes, here's the point. Sometimes getting from here to there is a little more difficult than we thought it would be. Sometimes it's not exactly what we would hoped that, that, that it would be. But see, the children of Israel, they wanted to get to the place that God had for them. But here's the thing. They, they just, instead of fighting harder, instead of doing a little bit more, they just decided that we're, they were going to compromise. Well, God told us if we lived with these people in the land, they'd destroy us. Ah, eh, he's probably exaggerating. You know, he told us that if we would be with these people, that we'd end up worshiping their gods and that that would incur God's judgment, and then we'd end up getting carried away. I'm sure that's not what he really means. And guess what happens? And you know why sometimes this happens? And, and it's this, this crazy thing that... That happens, but people start um, disobeying what it is that God has called them to do. And here's the weird part: you know, how it says they put them, they put them under tribute. All these these nations, like think about this: they used to be slaves for 400 years. God rescues them. God brings them to their own land. And then when they can't drive out the people, guess what they do? They just say, eh, "We'll just make you our slaves." We know about that. Their race of people, these Jews, they had been slaves, and now, after the horror that they've gone through. They decide to take other races of people and make them slaves. And it's like, what happened here? God says, drive them out of the land. These people will find another place. You dwell in the land that I have for you. Because these battles that you have, these fights that you're going to have to go through, they're going to build you character and, and make you the people that you need to be. But you know what happens sometimes? We just think that God gives us commands. He tells us something that he wants us to do. And we just take it under advisement. And we think that God is something like this. Remember this guy? You remember my buddy? Remember this? Right. My buddy and me like to climb up a tree. We're the best friends that could be. My buddy, my buddy, my, my buddy and me. My buddy, my play school. Right. And it's like we think that, that, God, that, that, that like God is like my buddy. By the way, haven't you noticed that my buddy looks like this guy too? Like they even are wearing like the same overalls. He just let his hair grow out. I always think that like my buddy and Chucky were friends. But then, like, Chucky started dropping acid in college. And that's what turned him into that. But he was like a normal guy. And then he got into drugs. So, kids, this is your future if you do drugs. Hugs, drugs. Okay? All right. Moving on from there. But here is the thing that happens sometimes, is that we start to think that God's like our buddy. Now, listen, Jesus told us in John 13, he says, I have not called you servants, for servants do not know what their master is doing. Instead, I have called you friends. 
But my friends, please don't mistake the fact that Jesus has called us friends with the fact that he is a holy and righteous God. And to not do what it is that he's called us to do is to simply incur God's wrath. You see, I just don't understand the people who just say, well, you know, God's my buddy, God's my friend, God is my co-pilot. That's the dumbest sticker ever. God is my co-pilot. So what you're telling me is there was a choice. You as the pilot or God, and you chose to have you be the pilot and God could ride shotgun. I just, it's not smart. How about, I, I like this, somebody should make this bumper sticker. God is the pilot, I'm in the trunk. That would work for me, right? I'm going to get as far away from the controls as possible because that just seems to work better. And here's the deal, and here's why we compromise at times, because we think that the reward of compromise is better than the consequences of compromise. And it never works out that way. My friends, God is holy, God is powerful, and no one mocks God and gets away with it. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6, here's what the Bible says. It says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If a man sows to the flesh, he reaps corruption or destruction. If a man sows to the Spirit, he reaps eternal life. You cannot sow to the flesh and reap blessing. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You don't, you know, and this is the thing that happens. Now listen, at the, at the expense of maybe stepping on a few toes, listen, here's the deal. You don't sow to the flesh and reap the blessed life that you want. You don't move into your girlfriend with your girlfriend sowing to the flesh and reap a better relationship. In fact, if you, have, if you don't know, the, the statistics on that, of couples who live together before they get married, 75% of couples who live together before they get married end up in divorce. Other, if you don't, you're at 50%. Still tough, but 75% if you decide to live together. You say, why? Because you can't sow to the flesh and reap the blessing of God. In fact, I was, I was watching a, 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 a woman just put out a book on this, a sociologist. She put out a book on this subject um, probably about six months ago or, or a year ago. And I'm watching an interview with her and she says and she she lays out this statistic, which has become fairly commonplace. But she says between all the studies that we've done, we found that 75 percent of couples who live together before they get married end up in divorce. And she says, um, so and so the the interviewer says, so is the solution for couples to stop living together. And and the woman says, well, I don't think we need to be that extreme. Like, well, what what should we do then? Buy them all popsicles? Oh, that'll be, let's just give them some sugar. I think they'll feel better. You know, what's the solution? No, she says, well, I just think we need to do things a little different. No, you just, you can't sow to the flesh and reap God's blessing. Hey, husbands, guess what? You can't have a blessed marriage while you download porn. Just not going to work. Oh, but see, I'm doing research. You want to do research? Do research with your wife that God gave you. All right. But if you just say, well, it's me, my wife and an Internet connection. I'm sure that's not in the Bible. I'm pretty sure. But just listen, why? Because you can't sow to the flesh and reap spiritual blessing. It doesn't work. Here's what a man of God does. He does not compromise his conviction. I want to share one more thing with you before, before we go our way. It's in chapter 2 of Judges, starting in verse 1. It says this, Then the angel of the Lord came up uh, from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you've not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive out them before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that they that uh, that the people lifted their voices and wept. 
And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. And the, when Joshua dismissed the children, the people, the children of Israel, each went to his own inheritance to possess the land. And here's the key. And so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was one hundred and ten years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance in Timnath Eris in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last one I want to share with you. That is that a man of God teaches his children. A man of God teaches his children. If you were with us a few months ago, I told you the story. Um, it's a story about I was walking by and forgive me if this is like offensive to you. I hope it isn't. But if, if it is, my apologies. Um, I was walking by. Uh, I'm, I'm at home and I'm walking by my wife and I just decided to just smack her on the butt. And um, and what I didn't realize is um, and some of you heard the story that uh, my daughter was right behind me. I didn't realize. And she decides to smack my wife on the butt, too, as she's walking by, except my daughter starts laughing and she goes, <laughs> Mommy, I slapped you on the butt just like Poppy. And uh, she thought it was hilarious. My wife, not so much. And um, so but the weird this is the part of this is like the extended part of the story is that um, she still does it. And uh, just says, no, 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 it's what Poppy does. And so the other day, um, Carrie is, uh, is, is cooking, and so she's got, like, vegetables and whatever all over her hands as she's cutting stuff and meats and whatever. And so my daughter walks into the room and just starts, like, smacking her butt like this, you know. And then she's like, Mia, would you stop that? And she goes, mm, no, because I'm like Bobby, and, uh, which I found hilarious, and my wife not so much. And, um, but my daughter is three, and, and it's like she, wa- she, does, she wants to do everything like I do it. So um, the other day we go to Chick-fil-A. And uh, by the way, if you ever say, I wonder where Pastor Bob is, one of the top three places you should look is Chick-fil-A. Um, so anyway, I go to Chick-fil-A and I, I'm like a nug- I like the nugget meal. I've kind of tried other stuff, but I'm like a nugget guy. So I get the nuggets and here's what I do when I get the nuggets. You may want to try this too. This is like the helpful things you learn at church. Um, what I do is I rip off the top of the box, which now becomes like my plate which is where I put my sauce, which is uh, I personally like the honey roasted barbecue, as I like to say, yeah, testify. Anyway, so I like to say it's so good it'll make you slap your mama. But um, but it's good stuff. So here's the thing that happens is that my daughter sees me doing this and she's like, oh, I'm going to be like Bobby. So she usually I rip the top of the box and I put ketchup on there. Well, one day all of us are at the four, my wife and I and my kids were at Chick-fil-A and she decides, no, I'm going to do it. So she grabs the box and starts ripping it. Well, in the process of this is a carefully orchestrated thing, but she decides to rip it. The chicken goes in the air flying, right? It's like an Atkins dream, like chicken nuggets flying in the air, right? And so she rips the box. She goes from, you know, six nuggets, four of them fall on the ground. But then she goes, look, Poppy, I'm just like you. And I said, yes, you are, Mia, except you ain't got no chicken. And so, but that was cool with her. And, uh, but here's the thing. Here's the point. It's not if you're teaching your kids, guys. It's what you're teaching your kids. 
In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, here's what the Bible says. It says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let uh, them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to your children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord at Horeb or Mount Sinai when he said to me, assemble people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land that they may teach them to their children. Parents, let me just talk to you for a moment. You cannot outsource teaching your kids how to walk with God. You can't say, well, I'll send them a Christian school and that's how they'll do it. Or I'll send them uh, to church and they'll do it. Listen, schools, churches are here to uh, to supplement, to reinforce what it is that you're teaching your kids in walking with God. But listen, we, we, we can't do it alone. It is a parent's responsibility to teach their kids how to walk with God. And listen, the period of the judges happened because of this passage. It says that jo- all the people followed the Lord because of because they saw Joshua. They followed the Lord because of the leaders who outlived Joshua. But because no one invested in the next generation, here's what it says. It says that they decided that everyone started doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no one there to lead them. And that's when we have now the judges who show up, these heroes that God gives them to now save Israel. And listen, I want to tell you something, that raising a child that's heroic... It's not an easy task. It takes courage. It takes discipline. It takes time. It takes unconditional love. But can I tell you this? It is worth it. You making sure that you're being discipled and invested in so that you can live a life that's heroic takes time and discipline and commitment and courage. But listen, it is worth it. The time of the judges, there should have been a thousand Othniels. But instead, there was only one. And listen, here is the message of the judges is that you can live like everyone else or you can walk with God and be a man like Othniel, a man of God who saved his generation. Oh, but you don't understand. I'm just like, I'm no hero. I'm just a regular person. Look at the memory verse in your outline. It says Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. A regular guy. He said this, it is not going to rain. And guess what happened? It didn't rain for three and a half years. And the same spirit that dwelt in Othniel and the same spirit that dwelt in Elijah and the same spirit that dwelt in Caleb indwells you. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what the Bible said. The same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive working within you. That is an amazing thing. It means that a revolution could be started that generations feel now because a group of people decided that heroes still exist. What does it say about these people? Let me let me just give you this verse. It's not in your outline. It's Hebrews 11. This is verse 32. It says this. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. They shut the mouth of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. My friends, that is not accomplished by unlocking your human potential. It's found by coming to the living God who created you. And asking Him to change your life. That's what God wants to do. 
He wants to change your life for eternity. If you're a Christian, he wants you to get serious with him and become a man or woman of God who will change this generation. And if you're here and you're not a Christian yet, the place where it begins is that there's a Savior who died for you, that rose again from the dead, who's ready to forgive you and ready to give you access to God and allow you to have a relationship with him again. That's where it begins. Forgiveness of sins, eternity promised, and power security in the present because my friends Elijah was a man just like us he was a man just like us the sooner that we believe that the sooner our lives will change the sooner that we believe that the sooner our families change the sooner that we believe that Elijah was a man just like us is the moment everything changes that's the message of the judges let's pray And Father, we thank you for that, that Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it did not rain. God, give us that kind of faith. Give us that kind of boldness. Give us that kind of courage to be the men and women you've called us to be in our generation. In Jesus' name, amen.